in a block of shops on Doble's Corner in Quincy, Massachusetts. I worked as a teenager in an Italian deli. It was in a row of stores which included a tavern, a cobbler, haberdashery, pharmacy, and a laundromat. In 1976, a new business leased one of the empty storefronts and set up a company called Sound Service. Out in the back alley, I would hear an electric guitar coming from inside, and I wondered, who does that? Who plays guitar while they're at work? What kind of business does that? And it was good electric guitar. One day, I knocked on the screen door out back, and I was invited in. Crossing that threshold would change the course of my life forever, because once inside, I was brought into a fascinating world of electronics, sound reinforcement, woodworking, musical production, and creation. In fact, as a vocational student studying electronic repair, I learned more in three months in that shop than I did in three years at school. Its owner was Stan Shields, a guy who has since become a lifelong friend. Stan has done many interesting things in many cool places over the years. He is now retired, and I'm using air quotes, in the quiet corner of Northeast Connecticut, where he has conceived and developed a place called the Inventing Shed, which is really a space to continue his passion for woodworking, guitar building, electronics, and whatever other maker impulses come to his creative mind. I am in that space right now, and it is my pleasure to welcome him to this episode of 15 Minutes of Stan, thanks for having me in to record here. Well, thanks, Danny. Thanks for coming on down to do some recording today. Yeah, this is a great space. I always love coming down to the quiet corner, and I just like being immersed in your shop. There's so many things going on here at once. It's, uh, it's mind-boggling. I have this segment that I do with all my guests, and it's a get-to-know-you segment. I usually ask three questions, but today I'm only going to ask one. If you could go back in time and meet a great inventor, who would that be? Wow. If I could go back and um, meet one of the the famous guys, it would have to be Marconi. And the reason I say Marconi is because I think he was unique in that he really didn't understand anything about what he was doing. Worked, you know, 25 hours a day. Um, Failure was, you know, did nothing but encourage him to work harder. Mm. He worked on what was at the time a very technical, in in a very technical field. He was trying to send telegraphic messages through the, through the ether, as they called it then. And uh, it was nothing short of magical. So it was a, it was a leading edge technological field. He didn't understand the science behind it. Didn't really make an effort to understand the science behind it, but he succeeded where many other quote unquote scientists failed and he succeeded through just sheer force of will and and brute brute strength so you relate to him and does it have anything to do with your first experience with electronics tell me about that well it does because i never got a formal education never went to college didn't really learn in any structured formal way about electronics or acoustics and, but I didn't let that stop me. I just kind of followed my nose and did what I was interested in doing, which was everything to do with speakers and sound systems and guitars and why did things sound the way they sounded. And I followed my nose and I had a lifelong career in a field 
that I didn't really have any formal education in. What was the first piece of electronics you ever worked on? I can remember being 10 or 12, and I can remember going down into the, the basement every night after supper and working on my model cars, and I would listen to the radio. And I had a table radio that, for some reason, I had removed from its plastic case, and it sat up on the ledge next to my bench. I hooked up as many speakers as I could find to the radio <laughs> to see if I could get it to be louder and sound better. And not being in the case, it also had the added feature that if you, if you held on to the vice on the bench and touched the front of the radio, you got an electric shock as well. So that was an <laughs> extra added feature. I learned a, about electronic theory that way too. So I was always curious about how the stuff worked and what would you do to it and how do you, you know, how do you get it to be better? How do you, you know, will it break if you hook up six speakers to it and it was only designed to run one or would it actually sound better or would it sound worse or... It sounds like you were an audio Frankenstein down there. Yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. Well, today we have YouTube. I mean, I, you know, I've learned a tremendous amount of things in the past few years, but, you know, I've had a lot of help. I can go online and I can find just about anything I want to know how to do. I can find a YouTube video on it. Back then we didn't have that stuff. So how did you, you know, how did you figure it out? You know, the mail order catalogs, that you know, Heathkit was a big thing back then. It was a sort of a electronic hobbyist kind of thing where you would buy a, a kit and put it all together and, and see if you could make it work. And, you know, right about that same time, I, I got my father to lend me the money for a Heathkit guitar amplifier, and I soldered it all together, turned it on. It didn't work, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad had a guy at work who was an electronic engineer, and we he let us bring it over to his house and he looked at it and figured out what I, ah, cool. I, I had, uh, I had transposed two wires. I thought it didn't matter which went where and turned out that it did. And this guy figured it out and made it work for me. So, but that sounds like Legos to me. Like they give you the pieces, they give you the instruction. How did you learn not how it works, but why it works? I don't think I knew why, you know, going back to Marconi, I don't think I had any really fundamental uh, understanding of this stuff. I just did what, what the instructions said to do, or I, you know, I hooked it up. If it didn't work, I hooked it up some other way. And I, you know, kept pounding at it until stuff mm -hmm. did what I thought it was going to do. But still no one's teaching you how circuitry works. No one's teaching you power supply output. But yet when I started working with you at sound service, you taught me how to troubleshoot electronic equipment to the component level. How did you, how, where did that come from? I think the reason I was good at it was because I figured out early on that it was really just common sense. If you approach it from, oh my God, there's 400 components in here and I need to understand what each and every one of them does, that's a mountain to climb. If you approach it from the other direction, which is to say, 99.9% .9 of all the components inside this complicated device are perfect. And there's only one that has an issue and it's causing this to not work. If I can just learn how to identify which of all those 400 components is the culprit, then I can figure out how to fix this thing. And you also are a musician. You play guitar. You're a woodworker. You can build just about anything. How did that all come together for sound service? You were providing sound reinforcement for live music. You were repairing the equipment that the talent used. 
question. So how did Sound Service come together? Sound Service came together because I was working at a very large hi-fi chain in Boston called Tech Hi-Fi. And I was the service manager. I had about 20 people that worked for me, technicians. And, you know, I played guitar, I played in a band. And of course, back then, you know, music was a big thing. I don't know, it just occurred to me at one point that, well, if I can fix this complicated hi-fi equipment, I can certainly fix guitar amplifiers because they're much simpler devices. And I love the music and I love the whole music scene. And so I decided <laughs> that uh, what I should do is quit this great job. I was like 22 years old and I should start a little business that was involved in repairing the equipment that musicians used to play in the local bands. So that's what I did. I quit my job. I rented that little store that you mentioned in, in Quincy. Had no idea what I was doing. I just thought, well, this is a good idea. I can figure out how to fix this stuff. And I rented the store and I had 30 days before the rent was due. And I had no money because I had spent all my money on, you know, workbenches and stuff that I needed in the, in the shop. Knowing that the rent is due in a month is a pretty good motivator. Uh, and I figured out that a lot of the local music stores didn't have service departments, but they had customers that were coming in and right. saying that they had, you know. Charles Bean music. There was Charles Bean music <laughs> in Quincy, and, and every town had one, you know. So I, you know, got in my little van, and I drove around to all the music stores that I could find, and I said, hey, I'll, I'll be your service department. I'll pick up and deliver your electronic repair stuff, and I'll drop it off with you. You know, we'll do it once a week. Enough of them agreed that... I had enough work and sure enough on the first, you know, when the first 30 days came due, I had enough money to pay the rent. It just kind of went from there. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't know what a business plan was. I had no idea how to figure out, you know, what, what I need in terms of expenses and, and, you know, income and taxes and sales tax and what all. I didn't worry about any of that stuff. Right. You know, it worked out. You also amassed a tremendous amount of sound reinforcement equipment, PA systems, microphones, mixing boards, a lot of this in cases that you custom built, a 100-foot 16-channel snake that you soldered together yourself, and you went out and hired yourself to be the audio engineer for some of these gigs. Yeah, you're right. We, had, uh, we amassed a bunch of sound equipment, and we would rent that equipment to bands that couldn't afford to, to own their own equipment but they had gigs, so they would rent PA systems from us. And then at the same time, we would go off and do shows at colleges and clubs and, and so forth. The best band around at the time was a band called the Dead End Kids. So we set our sights on them and went after them. And they were head and shoulders above um, the typical bar band at the time. going to their management with a list of all the equipment that I would bring to bear on the problem, telling him that he needed to hire me as their sound company and I would make them sound better. And uh, he said, well, I don't want to take on any more expenses. We already have lighting and trucks and we have a road manager and we, you know, I can't afford to spend a lot of money on it. And I said, well, okay, I tell you what, 
just make me a member of the band and I will take the same cut that everybody else in the band is getting. If he can do that, then I'll, I'll load up the truck and we'll, we'll make these guys sound good. And he agreed to do it. And so off we went. That was the path to becoming a big sound company. You hitch your wagon to the brightest star that's available. Then you ride with them as they move up the food chain and become successful. Certainly, they were going to become world famous any minute now. And (laughs) when that happened, we would take the ride with them and everything would be awesome. We had a lot of fun. We made a lot of noise. We carried around enough sound equipment to, you know, (laughs) damage the hearing of people for miles around. Um, You know, they didn't become world famous overnight, you know, but we learned a lot. So at some point, you decide that sound service is not the place to be. You're going to leave and head off to the corporate world. Why? Well, sound service existed for almost five years. It was basically killed off by the disco scene. The live music industry, in air quotes, took a major hit when disco became the dominant popular form of music because the club owners no longer had to have the the smell and the mess of hiring live rock bands. All they had to do was get a DJ, put a permanent sound system in the club, get some lights, and off they went. It just became too difficult. The the market for what we did essentially dried up and and went away. Tell me about mixing live music. What is it that's so appealing to you about mixing live music, and what is your philosophy? What makes for a good mix? It sounds trite and uh, corny, but... What appeals to me about it is done right and done well, uh, you become, you know, the fifth Beatle. You become part of the band. The experience that the the audience is having, what you do brings a lot to bear on that. If the sound engineer does a great job, the audience has a better time. The sound engineer is sort of the conduit through which the performer gets his performance across to the audience. To me, you know, that's a sort of a heady responsibility. Mm. I mean, I felt like if I do everything at the top of my game, then the band is perceived as a better band. The audience has a better time. They tell their friends about this. Everybody wins. Everybody does better. It's also true that at the amateur level, most bands can't afford the level of production quality that you see at, at the upper levels of the industry. Right. But they really need it. And in fact, I I think they need it more and they benefit more by having good production. Van Halen can go out and set up their gear, set the knobs and go on and play without any sound engineer. And everybody will think it's awesome and it'll be great. And they'll have the audience will have a great time. Amateur guys don't know how to do that. Hmm. The guitar player is too loud. The drummer isn't loud enough. He can't hear the kick drum. The keyboard guy has no idea how loud he is. And so, you know, they need more help. Right. And so they benefit more by having somebody that's on their side and trying to, to make them sound the best that they can. And uh, I think that's kind of cool. Do you approach a live mix as science or art? I think a live mix is, is art, but it's art that relies on the technical capabilities of the equipment. If the equipment's broken or very poor quality, then even the best sound engineer is going to have a hard time making that work. 
the execution of the mix and the nuances of it and all of that, that's, that you could say is art, but it relies on having enough understanding of the technology that's at work so that you can allow it to work. So you don't get in the way. Mm. And here's where I think your story gets really interesting because you head off into the corporate world and you get some real killer jobs working at some real high profile audio companies. And again, you don't have that college degree. So tell me what was that like entering that world? So when we closed up sound service, um, I needed to find another job. I was also in the process of getting married. So I decided I needed to find a good, solid corporate job. <laughs> and that's what I did. I went off and uh, got a haircut and I did some job <laughs> interviews and I, and I got a job at a, a little company called Honeywell as an electronic technician again. And I worked there for a couple of years. I ultimately became sort of disenchanted by it uh, because it wasn't audio. Mm. It was electronic repair. And it was interesting and it was challenging. And everyone that worked there used to refer to it as the golden handcuffs. You know, they kept paying you more and more money, but the job really wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't creative. Uh. It wasn't, and it wasn't audio. And one day, one of the other guys that worked there came in with a newspaper clipping in his hand. And he said, this is you. It's a help wanted ad for Bose Corporation. And he said, look at this. This ad reads like you. You should go do this. And uh, one thing led to another. And I, you know, that's what happened. I ended up getting hired at Bose. I took a pay cut because I wanted to get back involved in audio. I needed the security of, you know, the quote unquote corporate world, but I still wanted to be involved in audio. And Bose was a major worldwide manufacturer and they just happened to be in our backyard. So it was a perfect fit. Nice. Yeah. So off I went. What did you do for them? The job I took was an AV technician job where I would set up slide projectors and uh, sound systems for presentations. And I did one job after another for about a year at a time. When I went to work there, I was, my plan was that I was going to stay there for a year and a half. Really? Yeah, that was my plan. So I ended up being there for 20 years and had a succession of jobs. It was really fortunate for me because when I landed there, the company happened to be in a period of its growth much like adolescence, you know, they were right on the brink of turning into a large world-class player in the audio industry. Basically, they were selling home audio speakers and they had just started to get involved in car, uh, OEM car stereo. And the environment was very much welcoming to what we used to call intrapreneurs. Inside the company, if you had a good idea for something, a new market or a new product or a new business, as long as it didn't sound like it was completely, you know, from Mars, you would be given free reign to go explore that and see if you could turn it into something. Interesting. Yeah. You know, my prior experience had been running my own business and I had that entrepreneurial spirit. One thing led to another. I ended up with a, a small portfolio of businesses that was like an incubator. You know, I had a handful of businesses that I was responsible for that were untried untested, seemed like a good idea on the surface, but the only way to find out would be to actually put feet on the ground, put some products into the market and go off and see if there's a, enough of a market to justify Bose being in that business. And so that's what I did. I can only imagine that Bose Corporation, there's people there with doctorate degrees, yet you don't have a college education. And what was it like working with people that had higher education? Yeah, it was a real opportunity. And it's true that Bose is... Um, 
company was founded by an MIT college professor. And there's a real academic bent inside that company. Yeah. You know, there were lots and lots of these, you know, giant cranium PhD folks involved in, you know, engineering and research. Bose is a research centric company. Did you work directly under them? No, as it turns out, people that are involved in research and in deep engineering really want to be left alone and allowed to do that. They really don't want to be encumbered by little problems like how are we going to sell this and to who and for how much and how will we build them and, you know, who's the customer. And so they were more than happy to have somebody like me come along and say, well, I'll figure all that stuff out. Mm. You just do that thing that you do. <laughs> and uh, here's what the customer is saying, you know, they want. Here's a concept for a product. Help me build it. I'll go off and figure out all the rest of it. I'll take that burden off of you. I had none of the education that they had. I was willing to sign up to do all of the things that they really weren't interested in. There's an old saying that, you know, the difference between a salesman and an engineer is that an engineer learns more and more about less and less until he knows everything there is to know about nothing. <laughs> and a salesperson <laughs> learns less and less about more and more until he knows nothing about everything. It takes both kinds of people. Hmm, that's interesting. I guess we could say that all good things come to an end, and so did Bose. You stayed in the corporate world for a while, but you never stopped working on the things that you are passionate about. You're a maker. You're a woodworker. You're a guitar builder. You build miniature dioramas. You still repair electronic equipment. Let's talk about the inventing shed, something that you created and where does that come from? Where is the inventing shed? Somehow I remember that. The inventing shed comes from the movie Spinal Tap. Ah. Nigel Tufnell, <laughs> the, uh, the hero. Nigel has a shed and he takes us out back there and explains that this is his inventing shed. Uh -huh. And he shows us a couple of things that he's been working on, these kind of wacky uh, inventions. And I just thought it was a a goofy enough name that, you know, it'd be fun. I, I should just call the company the Inventing Shed. <laughs> <laughs> the customers that I worked for once I got the company going, it was sort of an acid test. If they didn't know what the Inventing see, Shed yeah. was, yeah. then, you know, they might, they, they might be somebody I don't want to be dealing with. You know? <laughs> so it was, a, it was a good filter for the, for the customers. In the past bunch of years, you started doing guitar builds and you use some really exotic woods and some really slick components. Yeah. When I got out of the corporate world, I was, you know, I was like in my late fifties, the company I was working for at the time was bought up and, and carved up and put out of business. And so I found myself on the street and I started looking for a job and it was like, at that point, you know, nobody was going to hire a highly paid senior management type person in the audio world who was in their late fifties. It just, it wasn't going to happen. So as a hobby, I was going down into the basement at night and cutting up wood and, and trying to figure out if I could build a guitar or not. It just was something I was curious about. Hmm. After, you know, seeing me spend six or eight months looking for a job and not finding it, my wife one day said, well, why don't you just go build guitars? <laughs> you know, she was tired of... <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom there. She was tired of uh, having me complain about not getting a job. And there was a lot of wisdom there. And I said, well, I don't know if I can make any money at it, but I'm not getting a job elsewhere. So, uh, okay, I'll go try that. So it appealed to me. 
it appealed to me on a, on a, a number of different levels. I love the wood. I always was a woodworker. My dad was one of those guys. That mm-hmm. He was always building the bookshelf that he found the plans for on the back of Popular Mechanics magazine or, you know, whatever. And of course, my obligation was to be his helper. And, you know, I got the bug too. And I, I learned a little bit about woodworking. Guitars was interesting. It was woodworking, like any other kind of woodworking. But if you could figure out how to do it right, in the end... You could theoretically produce something that a musician could actually make music with. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of an intriguing proposition. I had no idea if I could do it, but I figured, well, if I can build speaker cabinets and road cases and, you know, whatever, then I should be able to do this. I just have to figure out what the secrets were. Once again, I didn't let any, (laughs) I didn't let my lack of understanding stop me from trying it. I just thought, well, I can do this. And I, so I did had a wood stove in the shop. The, the shop was in the basement. All the mistakes went into the wood stove. <laughs> and I tell people I was almost never cold down <laughs> as I figured out how to do this. And I found a little niche in the market. There were companies out there that built um, guitar necks and guitar bodies. And I couldn't find a company that was making guitars out of exotic woods, electric guitars. Mm. Thanks to Leo Fender, 99% of the electric guitars in the world are painted like automobiles. He saw the, uh, you know, the 1950s Chevrolets that had, you know, green and white two-tone color schemes. And he could have a whole product line full of guitars if he just made them in different colors and different colored pickguards and so Mm. forth. So I got the idea, well, maybe I'll do something with really pretty, exotic, highly figured woods and see if people want them. And so that's what I did. I launched this little effort to um, build exotic wood guitar bodies for people who wanted to build their own guitar. They were able to buy a neck and buy pickups and buy the electronics and the bridge and all the other parts on the web. And they'd buy the body from me. And uh, sometimes I would assemble it for them and ship it to them, or sometimes they would assemble it themselves. And then they could say, well, I built this guitar. People would choose the design of the body, the shape, the pickup configurations, the type of bridge, all the particulars about it. And people would choose the exact piece of wood that they wanted. And then I would quote on it and they'd place the order and I'd build the body and ship it to them. Do you consider yourself retired? <laughs> yes. I think if you're, if you're no longer working to pay the bills, then you're retired. Why do you work now? Because you work all the time. Well, what else would I do? I can't sit in a chair for more than 15 minutes before some alarm, alarm bell goes off in my head and says, <laughs> you should be doing something. What are you doing just sitting here? And I have all these interests. I mean, I have, I'm a compulsive builder. I have to be making stuff. It, at some level, it, it almost is not so important what that is. I could be making a box to put firewood in, or I could be making a guitar or I could be building a model of a hundred year old railroad locomotive or, you know, whatever it is, I need to do that. I have always needed to be building something. One of the reasons I was successful at Bose was because it was the same thing. It's just, I was building businesses, not boxes. It's a project. Building something is a project. You have an idea for something or you see a need for something. There's nothing that's more satisfying than being at the end of the day and turning the lights off in the shop and looking around before you do that and seeing something sitting there that Mm. didn't sit there that morning. 
it's a very satisfying thing to do to build anything. And in the corporate world, you know, the feedback loop can be years long. You can work on something today and not prove whether or not that's worth anything for another couple of years. You may not know what the result of that work was. But if you're building physical things like guitars or speaker cabinets or, or whatever, you can look at the result of the effort that you've put in and see whether you have succeeded or not. Mm. I think that's a really cool thing. I think we all could use a little more of that. That's fantastic. The term maker has hit the mainstream. Marconi seems to be the type of person who was a maker, or was he a creator? And what's the difference? What's the difference in your opinion? I think Marconi could have been called a maker. A maker is interested in accomplishing something tangible. A maker is somebody who is just as happy nailing four boards together and making a, a cutting board, you know, as they are spending a half a year building some elaborate piece of furniture. It's the process of making that attracts them. And a creative person isn't necessarily as interested in that tangible outcome as they are making something from nothing. For them, it's the, the germ of an idea and bringing the idea from zero to fruition. For a maker, repeating the process over and over again can be just as satisfying as creating something unique as a one-off. And how do you classify yourself? Are you a maker or are you a creator? I'm a better maker than I am a creator. Even though the business is called the inventing shed, it's kind of a misnomer. I don't really invent anything. I don't do well faced with the proverbial blank page. I'm very comfortable, however, using what someone else has done as a starting point, figuring out ways that I can make that better and improve on it. And I really enjoy that process. What advice would you give to a young person who's trying to figure out what they want to do, what kind of job they want to have, what their future is going to look like? When I was a kid, the way everyone thought you had to succeed in your life was you had to go take the pre-college courses in high school and you had to go off to college for you and get a degree and then get a white collar job and wear a tie. And I wasn't interested in any of that. When I got out of high school, the last thing I wanted to do was sign up to go to school some more. If there's a moral to the story, it's don't limit yourself to thinking that you have to follow the preconceived path, the most popular path in your life. You know, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. You don't have to necessarily check all the boxes and connect all the dots to prepare for some career doing something. A lot of people just jumped in and, and started doing it and figured it out as they went. And that's a perfectly valid way to approach a vocation in your life. That's awesome. People are forced to make choices that have lifelong implications well before they're actually equipped to make those yeah. choices, right? Yes. And it may be true that you don't really need to make those choices at all. You may be able to just follow your nose and work hard at something. And because you love it, you will get good at it mm. and you will, you will figure it out. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today, Stan, especially here in the shop, in the Inventing Shed. I appreciate you telling us your story, and thank you again for being on 15 Minutes Off. Thanks, Danny. It was a lot of fun. 
While I've been blessed to have Stan as a friend and mentor for over 40 years, I learned something about him I never fully understood, and it's fundamentally embedded in his instinct to design, craft, and build. Marconi was quoted as saying, Experience has taught me to not believe in the limitations of pure theory, because they are based on insufficient knowledge of all the relevant factors. Perhaps this concept is a driving force for many and bridges the gap between those who contemplate ideas and those who act on them. Most important was Stan's observations that formal education isn't the only path to producing value in the world and that it takes all kinds of people to give ideas a physical expression. So with that, I'll let Stan play us out on his scratch-built maple and mahogany neck-through electric. It takes me right back to that alley in Quincy. Quincy.